Oh, come on, it's Thursday night, December. Good evening, everyone. Very good, the house is in order. Well, listen, my name is David Leslie. I'm the director of the Rothko Chapel. It's my pleasure to welcome you here this evening. Uh, One bit of uh, business uh, kind of protocol. If you have a cell phone, and I'm gonna do this because mine is on, uh, would you turn it off if you don't mind? And if you would refrain from taking pictures. What we found in doing so, you really enhance the sense of the sacredness of the space and also of our connections to one another. So thank you about that, for that. In thinking about tonight's uh, program, Little Central America 1984, a sanctuary then and now, I'm mindful of that the concept of sanctuary in the act of providing sanctuary to those in need of a protected, safe, and secure place sheltered from the powers and principalities that are set on destroying one's life are timeless and they're universal. Especially during times of religious, economic, political, racial conflict and oppression, sanctuary safe harbors, they save lives, they illuminate the oppressive forces that keep people from being whole, they encourage community action, and exert a type of policy and practice that furthers equity, justice, and peace. Here in this country, the notion of providing sanctuary, as you all know, took on new urgency as the civil wars throughout Central and Latin America raised throughout the 1980s exacerbated by U.S. military aid and intervention. It was a time when many people of faith and justice, NGOs and religious communities throughout the country, began to question their own beliefs and practices, challenge government policies impacting that region of the world, and provided sanctuary and accompaniment to refugees and people displaced by these conflicts. It was a time in this nation when we were challenged to rethink and reframe our political, moral, theological perspectives as aptly captured in a sermon preached by First Unitarian Universalist Church of Houston senior pastor Bob Shibley, who said on December 13, 1983, and I quote, there is someone in trouble in Houston, an undocumented person facing deportation and they have broken the law and they are apprehended and they may be killed. Would you take them in? Would you harbor a criminal? It may be some time since you have had cause to think about moral distinctions as different from that which is legal." In response to Reverend Shively's challenge, as well as interactions with leaders from different disciplines and parts of Latin America, It was also a time of transformation for the Rothko Chapel. As the conflicts raged and people were killed, the chapel responded by shifting its resources to highlight the socio-political realities in the region, make connections with leaders on the front lines of social change, and engage with others in advocacy efforts to counter war and promote peacemaking and community development initiatives. The Oscar Romero Human Rights War was also launched during this period. Together, these efforts helped further illuminate and support the efforts and commitments of those working at great risk for peace and justice throughout the Americas, including faith communities and others who provided sanctuary and other forms of support 
displaced persons. So tonight, in that spirit, in this spirit, we gather in this sacred space to both remember the past as well as to give testament that the legacy of the conflicts of 19, in the 1980s are still very much with us today. It's witnessed in part, and I say only as witnessed in part, by people throughout Central America who travel at great risk to the U.S.-Mexico border, seeking sanctuary and support. We also gather in solidarity with those throughout the country who continue to answer the call to provide sanctuary, oftentimes in defiance of state and federal laws, making clear that the laws of the land do not always have the final say when it comes to true peace and justice. To help us with our deliberations this evening, we are so grateful and fortunate and privileged to have with us Elia Arce and Ruben Martinez, performer writers of Little Central America 1984, that premieres at First Unitarian Universal Church, Church of Houston on December 17 and 18. They will share the genesis and bit of their work with us tonight and its transformational power in conversation with Sixto Wagon, project director of the BIPOC Arts Network and Fund, and Allison Sines, a PhD candidate in the Department of History at the University of Houston, whose dissertation is titled, Being a U.S. Central American, Immigration, Culture, and Ethnicity in Houston. There will also be time for dialogue and questions so that we will all have the opportunity to participate in this important conversation. So again, it's my privilege and pleasure to welcome you to the Rothko Chapel and to present Jen Gardner, Deputy Director of Diverse Works, a good friend of this place and many in this room, and co-presenter of Little Central America 1984, who will give us a bit more information about the project and the production. Jen, it's all yours. Um, thank you, David. That was lovely. Um, as David said, my name is Jennifer Gardner, and I'm the Deputy Director of Diverse Works. Um, for those of you who may not know us, we are a 40-year-old multidisciplinary arts organization um, here in Houston, currently located at The Match in Midtown. And we were founded by an um, amazing group of activist artists in the 1980s. Um, and we're proud to be continuing their legacy today. Um, collaboration is a key component of our mission. And so we're really thrilled to be collaborating with the Rothko Chapel to present this program tonight in advance of the premiere of Elia and Rubin's production, Little Central America, 1984. So thank you to the entire Rothko staff for working so hard to make this possible, um, especially to Kelly Johnson and Will Davidson who've kept us all organized and on task over the last couple of months. Uh, it is always an honor to present in this beautiful space. Um, Diverse Works has been a champion of Elia Arce's work since the 1990s. Um, she's developed and presented numerous productions while in residency with us over the years, most recently in 2013 with her solo performance, First Woman on the Moon, which was produced by Sixto Wagen, our former artistic director. Um, so, a few months ago when former Diverse Works Performing Arts Director, Loris Bradley, reached out to us 
about the possibility of co-presenting this new production together with Circuit Network, of course, we said yes. There was no other answer to be said. Um, so I invite you to join us on Saturday, December 17th at 7 p.m. and Sunday, December 18th at 1.30 p.m. for the live performance of Little Central America 1984 at the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Houston, as David said. Um, if you haven't already gotten your tickets, they are pay what you wish, and they are available on our website, which is diverseworks.org, and also on this little card that you got in your program. There is a QR code, if you're into that sort of thing, um, that will take you directly to the ticket page. And they are pay what you wish, so they start at zero and zero dollars and go up from there. Um, so without further ado, thank you all for being here this evening, and please join me in welcoming Ruben Martinez and Elia Arce to the stage. We have here both a chapel and a monument, a place for worship and a memorial to a great leader, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. The association of these two remarkable sites should tell us over and over again that spiritual life and active life should remain united. It should tell us over and over again that Whoever believes they love God and does not love their neighbor is deceiving themselves. It should remind us over and over again that there is no love without justice. Dedicatory address for Barnett Newman's Broken Obelisk by Dominique de Menil. Sunday. February 28 of There's a place, so I've been told Where the streets are paved with gold And it's just across the borderline And 
When it's time to take your turn There's a lesson you must learn You could lose more than you'll ever hope to find And when you reach the broken promised land Every dream slips through your hand And you'll know it's too late to change your mind Cause you paid the price to come so far Just to wind up where you you're still just across the borderline and you're still just across the borderline the 80s and early 90s was a time of experiencing Central America and Los Angeles first hand and simultaneously. When I mention the 1980s and 90s, what comes to your mind? My refugee girlfriend's trauma, thinking I was gonna test positive for HIV, doing a lot of cocaine in Venice, even as I was working for solidarity with Central America. I think about the death squads in El Salvador. I think about the white hands, remember the white hands on the doors? I think about that. And just after the Nicaraguan Revolution, I remember friends that were tortured in Honduras. I remember friends that were jailed in Costa Rica and that they were tear gassed by the police. I remember in Nicaragua, pregnant women in military green uniforms, they were pregnant, riding in the back of trucks, and they were just laughing. And I think about doing street theater at the border between Nicaragua and Honduras in Esteli while the bombs were going off. And I think about young people in Managua running the country full of joy and full of hope. And I think about winning. It was a time of taking sides, of deciding whether to stay or to go into exile. And in LA, my mother and I received the exiles. Manlio Argueta, the Salvadoran novelist, was in our home. My mother had coffee with Claribel Alegría, the Nicaraguan Salvadoran poet. They could not visit El Salvador because of the death squads. My mother and I were closer than ever. And my father and I became strangers. It was a time of taking sides. Reagan dumping the mentally ill on the streets, making Los Angeles the homeless capital of the world powder cocaine from the Iran-Contra affair becoming crack cocaine on the streets of Los Angeles. The riots explode after the not guilty verdict, 
And Rodney King asked us all to get along. At the same time that the peace accords are signed in El Salvador. Curfews and helicopters flying above our bungalows in Echo Park. Drive-by shootings across East and South LA. O.J. Simpson, Ruben Blades y Buscando America. The Mexico City earthquake of 1985, the San Salvador earthquake of 1986, the Northridge earthquake of 1994. The Crips and the Bloods, the birth of La Mara Salvatrucha, the MS-13. Who are later deported back to El Salvador only to have their children come north once again. The unaccompanied children trying to change the way their story ends.
Good evening. Uh, I'm Sixto Wagen, and I have the privilege in order to uh, be moderating the discussion tonight. Um, but first, another round of applause for Ruben and Elia. Um, I call this a privilege because I, I, uh, tonight is about a lot of intertwining histories. I was uh, co-executive director, artistic director of DiverseWorks for many years, and that is where I met uh, Elia. Elia was actually one of the first performance artists that I met um, when she performed in the early 90s, and, and since then I produced some of her shows and, uh, and presented and actually been an avid just kind of learner and a mentor with her. Like, um, but tonight I come with some of that history with Elia, but a lot of curiosity about what we're talking about tonight. I don't have a lot of, his, I don't have a lot of expertise, but I do, uh, I'm hoping that I'm actually gonna be an opportunity in order to bring some of the curiosity um, with me, and hopefully we will be able to be curious and be open together in this sacred space. Um, tonight, uh, I just wanted to think about just kind of our overview of our time together. Uh, today's conversation is to think about performance as a piece of catalyst and how is it a conduit to empathy. Also, to think about history and the current state of Central Americans, particularly in Houston, and to gain an understanding of the sanctuary movement, as well as creating a space for action and activity. So, at this point, I'm going to um, invite all of us to come up to the stage as we transfer this, Elia Ruben, thank you. Thank you. So uh, before we go into this, I think that um, we are also gonna have a, an opportunity for questions and answers. And I guess I'm gonna offer this as, as an idea for you, but we heard the invocation from the Mrs. Damoniel about this being a sacred space, being a monument, and that spiritual life and active life should remain united. A question that comes up for me, and a, like, like I'd offer it for you all to, to ponder as we process this excerpt from Ruben and Elia and talk more about what the sanctuary movement meant historically. So the question to you all is, what does the intersection of art, social justice, and spiritual communities look like? Where is that reliant on individuals and or organizations in order to move that forward? And what does that look like for us today? So, um, and hopefully we can share some of those thoughts during question and answer. So uh, I'm gonna introduce, thank you very much for all being here. So Alison Science, can you actually introduce a bit of yourself and then everybody? Yes, hello everyone, my name is Allison Sines. I am a PhD candidate at the University of Houston um, in the Department of History. My dissertation is on US Central Americans um, and it's a very personal history to me as a daughter of a Honduran father and a Costa Rican mother. So I'm very honored um, and happy to be here tonight with you all. Thank you. Uh, Ruben Martinez, my day job is as a professor at uh, Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles in the departments of English and uh, Chicana Latina Studies. Mm -hmm. Elia Arce, performance artist and uh, co-writer with Ruben of the Central American 1984. So uh, Elia and Ruben, thank you again for the performance. It was, um, it's incredible to just see again and you perform it after reading it on page and actually seeing you uh, manifest that. But, um, Ruben, the first question is to you. So, 
Um, why this performance now? So, uh, title, Little Central America, comma, 1984. <laughs> and uh, it's not an arbitrary year. Obviously, since it's the title. Um, those of you who are old enough to remember 1984, raise your hand. <laughs> um, Okay, what was the soundtrack of that summer? Journey, did somebody say? Uh, Prince. <laughs> Prince! Yes! That was my favorite. Although Purple Bruce... Rain. <laughs> Purple Rain, yes. Bruce Springsteen was on the airwaves as well. It was the height of the Reagan era. It was right, right the, the middle, midpoint of the Reagan years. Uh, the wars in El Salvador were at their, and uh, Guatemala were at their cruelest moment. Um, by that time, though, also this other, we, we concentrate so much on the traumatic narrative, but something else is starting to occur by 1984, um, that the communities of exiles and refugees are starting to really coalesce, really taking on uh, spatially, affectively, um, politically, socially, culturally, uh, are really starting to resonate. And, uh, and the sanctuary movement had been around a few years already. So all these things are occurring at the same time, and ultimately, it's gonna push the wheel of history, all these things together. So that moment, it really felt like it was the beginning of the big change that was gonna come later on. Thanks. So, Elliot and Ruben, like, you know, you've been working together, and, and, but I guess for Elliot, like, a question to you is that, in, in what ways do you all choose um, which stories or what, what to bring forward in, in, in this performance? Well, um, first, we started with our own personal experiences. So I, uh, I was in Costa Rica at the beginning of the 80s and part of the movement there, and then came to the United States, and then I was part of the movement here. So we had, we started with that, like talking about my personal experience and Ruen's personal experience. So starting from the personal to then go into something bigger. After, after that, we have been meeting different people in, in the community. So when we worked in, in Los Angeles, we, we interviewed the organizers, the leaders of the, of the movements there, and from there we started to decide also which issues were going to be uh, centering into the piece because there are so, so many. And also in Los Angeles, we were talking with the Methodist Church over there, the Echo Park Methodist Church, which was actually the church that declared itself the sanctuary at that time and received the Central American refugees uh, in the 80s. So we performed in Los Angeles the piece at that same place, at the same place where that, uh, the sanctuary movement, let's say, started in a way. Mm -hmm. um, so thanks, I think that it's important also that the first year you was actually, like, you know, you, you're going, coming here in order to be able to perform that space. I also think that um, what and in, in, in this work, it, it's very much about personal narratives and, the, and, and about a mm -hmm. personal story. And I think mm -hmm. with um, Alison, like in a previous conversation, we talked about uh, how, uh, how history is actually what has been written down and that these are some of the stories that are actually missing. Um, mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about how that, how that process has actually been both an obstacle and a, an opportunity in your, in your research? 
Absolutely. Um, as I embarked on my research journey um, to write this dissertation, and as I continue to do so, um, I didn't know where I would begin. Um, and many times, you know, you, you want to start online in, in, in digital databases to see what's already out there, um, what finding aids um, exist that might already have Central Americans um, in there. And in Texas, that's kind of hard to do. <laughs> um, and so it means having to become creative and acknowledging that there's a power to the archive. Um, and that power has led me to have to be creative. Um, and so many times I'm in the papers of white allies who were instrumental in the movement as well, but it means I'm finding the sidelines in which Central Americans are, are written about. Um, and yet, um, in order to gain those first um, narrative experiences, it means oral histories. Um, it means collaborating with people like Elia and Ruben um, to see what they have done in other cities. But that oral narrative is super important. When I'm able to sit across someone else who has lived through these experiences and, and really take in what they're saying and position that historically, um, it's an honor on my end. Um, but w without the oral narrative, I think we really miss the heartbeat um, of what I think we're all trying to get at. And it's the, the humanity, the, the human aspect of, of history. It's about people. Well, I think just it's also one of those things where when you talk about the humanity, like what I also experienced just with, with the excerpt is not just around kind of the stories, but also with the song. And there was, there was a, it is a physical and, and an emotional reaction to this kind of space. So I think in, in what ways is, I think that, in what ways is that part of an, an, an objective for you all in, in this performance? Or is that, is, is that just me actually just no, projecting that? No, I think that naturally, I believe that in the movement in the 80s, we did have some the songs that were following us around. There is a whole uh, new, new song movement. And so we, we shared. Uh, I, I think that probably, it would, I would imagine, in different cultures it's the same. We shared the same uh, singers. We knew the same songs. We all sang them together over and over and over and over again. So in a way, all those songs are known by a whole, by, by a whole Latin America movement, a Latin American and, and, and the Caribbean, in a way, movement, and during that whole during that whole era. So I I feel that the songs are part of are part of them, are part of us, are part of of who we became. Uh, it really affected us the whole the whole music all the new song, new song movement. And just briefly, there was a, a big moment just last week. Uh, mm -hmm. Pablo Milanes, one of the mm -hmm. founders of the Cuban Nueva mm -hmm. Trova movement, just passed away at the age of 79. Mm -hmm. It was a big moment for people of our generation yeah. because that music, that was the soundtrack. These songs that Eli is talking about, the mm -hmm. new song movement from South America, from the Caribbean, from Mexico, Central okay. America, that was the soundtrack to our lives, to the mm -hmm. political movement, mm -hmm. It was part of the inspiration to mm -hmm. keep going in the, in the, at the, in the face of terrible yeah. odds of, of winning, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and of hope. Yeah. The whole idea was we are creating uh, what we used to say, el, el nuevo hombre. Well, that was, you know, the new man. No. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was very so, gendered back then. Yeah, so the, the idea, yeah. Exactly. 
So the idea is like, I mean, we were all really working towards becoming better, better persons. And it, it, was, it was part of, of why we were doing all of this. It was all about, we all together as a community are working to become better persons. And to overthrow Yankee imperialism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that subject. And, and, um, well, I, I guess, like, this, this, I guess also one of the things for me, that, you know, coming into this, I've lived in Houston like, for a long time. And, and I think part of, part of the discourse and part of the dialogue that, 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 we, get, that we get used to here in Houston, like, you know, at least some, for, for those of us who are not part of a, a Latin community, is that uh, thinking around uh, uh, Latin means, like, is it equivalent to Mexican for, for many of us? And that, you know, and, oh. and that, that there is a, like, and there's a lack of understanding of the complexity and the right. nuance of what's going on. And I think part of what I'm excited about what you all are doing in this is that how do we actually give voice to to a community that is not, that has not been who continues to be in that margin and one of the things in the performance that you all are going to do is actually bring a, a, some some local heroes so can you talk a little bit about that yes we are going to as part of the performance there is a ritual that um, we do where we honor the local activists that were active during during those years that were really active. A lot of people are religious people uh, that put their lives, their lives on the line. I mean, it's, 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 it's incredible. It's really impressive. And, and they broke the law and they did things because they really believed in, in, in this. So I, I feel that um, in, in a way, be, the, the wave of the Central Americans coming into the US had a really big impact in the Latino community in the US in terms of they were coming fresh from organizing, from fighting, from willing to being willing to give their lives for their beliefs and also willing to give their lives for their uh, brothers and sisters that were also struggling. So it's, it's a really spiritual thing. And, and with this fresh knowledge coming into the United States, they started organizing and in a way bringing this new energy into movements that had already maybe been already the Chicano movement, uh, but they also created new organizations that only now is being understood that um, they exist because they were created by these Central Americans that came here and started working grassroots, you know, getting their hands dirty and really doing, really doing the work. You know. So much of your research here is about that, that building, community building, no? Absolutely. Um, I'm trying really hard to recover that. Um, and I, I thank both Ruben and Elia for the artistic expression because, well, for one, um, it made me teary-eyed right now. Um, and I think that it speaks to, to the generation. Also, I think differences, I, me as a daughter of immigrants and, and the first wave and 
how that community building has occurred. But yeah, there, there is no historical record of Central Americans in the United States. And that's really sad. <laughs> I say that like, um, it, it honestly does break my heart. And, and so even me writing this dissertation is a cathartic experience because it doesn't exist. When I had to write the historiography portion of my, <laughs> my advisors in the, in the, <laughs> in the audience, she, she can attest to this. It was really difficult for me because I had to position it alongside these, um, these narratives of the Mexican experience, right, or of the Puerto Rican experience. Um, and so that recovery here in Houston has really, like, broadened my own vision of what community building has been here, and as someone who grew up in the city, right, and so I'm learning things about the Central American Resource Center, right, like, Crescen. I'm, I'm learning about leaders in the community who, um, who have been trailblazers, um, and I'm excited and yeah, just very humbled and honored uh, to to be able to recover that um, and yeah, tell that story. Well, I think if, if you could actually talk a little bit of, for, for some of us who don't mm -hmm. like who aren't as as versed in something, can you talk yeah. a little bit about uh, some of the Central community, uh, Central American community here, for sure. so that um, we might know it, but we might not understand that that's what we know. Absolutely. Um, so Gulfton in particular is one of the um, major areas in Houston that holds a really large Central American population, many of whom migrated in the 1980s. Um, and if you drive down Bel Air Boulevard or Renwick Drive or, or Chimney Rock, like you will see Central Americanness or what I call Centro Americanidad. And that can mean a pupuseria next to a taqueria. And if you've never had pupusas, you should definitely go have some. <laughs> um, they're really good. Um, but that's where like Crescen is found, right? The Central American Resource Center. It's where these roots, um, um, decades now of community building have, have occurred. And um, churches, right? Art um, that aligns, whether we're talking murals um, made by Central American artists, right? Um, schools that also um, now for, for decades have um, catered to refugees, right, who have historically made their way to um, the Gulfton area. And so I encourage you all to, to visit Gulfton if you never have. Um, but also Central Americans are everywhere in Houston. I grew up on the northwest side of town, um, and I also had my pupuseria <laughs> around the block. Um, so we're, we're everywhere, whether we're talking about Spring Branch or Aldean, or even Dickinson, right, which is even like the grander uh, metropolitan Houston area. Thanks. So I think, you know, we, we've talked about the individuals and I think now it's kind of like, I'd like to transition to kind of organizations, kind of sanctuary and the whole kind of movement aspect. And I think that um, I, David wrote, uh, read the, a part of the sermon from uh, Reverend Shively that happened, um, it was almost 40 years ago. And these are the conversations that we're still having now. Um, so I think that it would be great, I think, Ruben, if you can talk a little bit about the sanctuary movement that, and like, as you understand it, and, it has, and how, it was, how it manifested differently here in Houston as it did in, and as you said, Tucson or LA or... Sure, or in uh, Berkeley, yeah. Uh, so uh, the roots of sanctuary, if we had all night, we'd go back 2,000 years, uh, you know, because the first uh, sanctuaries were sanctuaries uh, for uh, persecuted Christians in the Roman Empire. Uh, in, at least in the Western Christian sense of uh, the, the, the history or etymology of, of the term sanctuary. Um, but let's fast forward. Uh, and uh, the Vietnam War, uh, already sanctuary was starting to coalesce into a concept 
but it really blossoms with the Central American conflicts and the idea that we that, uh, that refugees were arriving by the tens of thousands um, at that time from the wars, specifically in El Salvador and Guatemala. The Reagan administration denied that they were refugees. They were called communists, they were called opportunists, they were called economic, you know, uh, rather than uh, fleeing terror, U.S.-sponsored military regimes uh, in those states. So uh, it's a faith it was a faith-based movement. Uh, the first uh, uh, churches to do this uh, were Southside Presbyterian in, in Tucson, but also uh, St. John's uh, Presbyterian in Berkeley. Uh, little, just a little bit later, uh, La Placita, Our Lady Queen of the Angels in Los Angeles, and first Unitarian Universalist here uh, in Houston, which is a story that I didn't know, mm -hmm. but uh, through Allison and other people have come to know it a little bit, and that's why we're doing mm -hmm. the performance there. I'll just add one other thing. For me, and kind of like in the, the concept of the overall project, sanctuary is both a referent to the sanctuary movement specifically, this faith-based movement that defied federal law, took people in, and it was a symbolic and material uh, act, right? Because they were very media savvy. Part of it was certainly to be very public about what they were doing, but they were also offering material, you know, a shelter to refugees. I also think of little Central Americas as their own kind of sanctuaries. The, this creation of, of space, mm -hmm. of Gulfton, that in itself, I mean, these are ethnic enclaves mm -hmm. that we, throughout American history, we know of little Italys and little Saigons. Uh, almost all of these are created out of traumatic experiences, right? Um, and, but to me, those are sanctuaries, and that's the community itself mm -hmm. carving out space mm -hmm. with allies. So, Sanctuary is both a very specific movement-oriented thing, but it's also something that communities participate mm -hmm. in in a much larger sense. So I think that um, I'm also hearing the, 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 this, this intent and, and this observation of hope and, 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 and empowerment and, and, and in, in what ways, uh, in spite of or despite um, like, you know, all, all of the, the, the trauma and, and, and the work, you all are being very conscientious around holding the hope, holding, holding a power kind of space. And, and in, in, I guess, how, in, how intentional and what, is that, like, what does that look like for you all? And what does that mean? <laughs> he listens. Look at you. Yeah, like, I don't know. I don't know if it's a good question, but still. Well, sometimes it's very hard to have hope because it seems like things keep repeating themselves, you know? Um, so it's, it, it gets tiring. The thing is that I feel like when, when this new uh, wave came of, of, of people from Central America and everything that happened that is like atrocious, <laughs> I don't know how to name that, that occurred, putting children in cages. I mean, are we really even, is that, are those words really even coming out of my mouth? I mean, how, how, how I mean, that's, anyway. It's really hard to, to have hope. And then I think, well, what's the, uh, what's the other option I have? So, 
it's like, okay, so I need to have like triple hope. It's <laughs> like, let me just, you know, raise the notch a little bit higher. And that's basically what I'm doing personally. Um, I, I think that uh, reading all the stats in, in the program and it just as in being a reminder of all the details mm -hmm. and um, because I think um, one of the things that uh, just reading Reverend Stively's uh, sermon on that day on, in December um, in 1983 I have to say that like and I have a copy if anybody wants to like look at it because it, it is um, a really it's an amazing performance it is. it is a it's a, a really thoughtful um, con like conversation and call out to a community in order to lay lay fears at best, like, you know, at bay, but also be able to make um, some connections, direct connections to them. And I think that I, uh, part of part of the call is how do we get organizations, individuals, to act on that hope. How do we actually move from uh, the despair, mm -hmm. the, the uh, call out? And I think part of the thing that I was going to remind is that in this sermon, I think that he makes it very clear that there are so many reasons not to. We are all so busy. This is a bad time of a year. I have extra church services at an annual report to do, budget alignment, all the things that we have can put our, in front of ourselves as, as, as a reason not to make an action. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, just talking to you, Alison, like there was, that this process for First Year U, it was a process. Um, it was not just this sermon, and then things happened. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about just like in the timeline that you like referred to earlier? Absolutely, um, and I mean even, also, I think I should tie this back to the archival question because coming across this was because I came across a newspaper article that was digitized that mentioned First UU, so I reached out to the current reverend to confirm that it was the sanctuary space back in the 1980s, and then over this summer was able to spend time in their archives where I came across this sermon. Um, and when I held it in my hands for the first time, I was in awe. I was, I was mm -hmm. filled with questions, right, um, of what, I could feel the energy, right, um, through, through his words. Um, but yes, as I continued to re recover that history, I, I quickly learned that this wasn't an overnight thing. It was a process. Um, he gives the sermon in December of 1983, but conversations had started to um, happen in the membership and in the congregation um, that summer. He gives the sermon in 1983, then there's a community involvement subcommittee um, that through January of April of that year is discussing this. And they're, they're wrestling with these questions of how they're gonna bring it up to, to the rest of the membership. Um, they're ultimately gonna vote on it, but they also bring a lawyer panel, they bring a university panel, um, so scholars, uh, to be able to talk through these things. They bring in Leonel Castillo, who was um, the first Mexican-American INS director, um, and he was um, a native of Houston. And So they're bringing in all these experts to kind of quell the fear that the membership also had um, of whether or not they were going to say yes to, to being um, a sanctuary. And so 
Um, in April of 1984 is when they um, give this like public um, declaration, but they don't host any any refugees until June of 1985 and July of 1986. So we're talking about like two or three years, right? Um, and um, and that's not at all to say um, you know that it should have been faster or whatever. It happened in the time that it happened, right? And um, yes, they 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 hosted. Um, one of the other meaningful things I found in the archive is a ledger. And in this ledger, it is filled with notes of the volunteers who stayed with the migrants. Nelson, Mario, and Luis. Um, Nelson um, ultimately makes it to Canada. I'm unsure of the other two. Um, I'm still researching and looking through things. But, um, but when I held that also for the first time in my hands, I'm just like, how is this in a random church in Houston? And I'm like, you know literally like holding history right and and that's the recovery aspect right but yes um, all that to say that it it was a process for first UU right it did not occur overnight um, and there also was pushback you know even by some of the membership because it wasn't a unanimous decision um, I think Reverend Chibli in, in the sermon says he wants at least two-thirds of the congregation to say yes in order for them to to be a sanctuary um, church and space and they do attain that but that wasn't everyone Fascinating, yeah. Um, so I guess I think this is part of the question to me is that like, I think like many of us are wrestling with in terms of um, where, is our, where is our responsibility as individuals mm -hmm. and where is our responsibility as, as leaders of organizations, as leaders of, of, of businesses and, and, and in what ways are, are we um, leading the process because it is a it is a longer process, and I think that part of what we also know is that in Houston, we do things really differently than LA does. And, oh, I'm sorry, it seems like we do things differently. And we do, it <laughs> seems like um, what is so, and I'll just speak from my own experience here, is that in 30 years, we see so much of the work that happens behind the conversation, behind the doors, behind the conversation that we need to bring so many other people together to have more conversations, to, to be able to make um, organizational or structural change in this. And, and, and I think that it's, it is not necessarily something that is a protest action. It is not a, an immediate reaction. It is always a... Um, a, an ongoing process in order to bring people forward. Mm -hmm. And I guess, I, I think if you all can talk a little bit about what you, like, how that was differently in, in LA or how you all experienced that or, or how you all perceive that. Sure. Um, well, so um, I was born and raised in Los Angeles and, and, I, I, and I spent time here in Houston. I was a professor at the University of Houston uh, in the early 2000s and got to know Houston somewhat, but nowhere near, like natives and people who've been here decades. Um, Los Angeles has the largest population of Central Americans outside of Central America. Uh, it's over, over half a million. That said, Houston, by the, the most recent census count, has 250,000. That's a quarter of a million and LA is a lot bigger, so the, I, I haven't worked out the proportion, but the proportion is probably pretty close, actually, mm -hmm. when it comes down to it. Um, and that's saying a lot. This is an extraordinarily large population, and, um, and I was talking with Allison earlier about this, you know, about wh where is the community at, and maybe you want to, you know, uh, 
throw some ideas out there about, about the timeline, because the, the communities just form differently in different places. Uh, as anyone who has studied immigrant enclaves knows, um, they break down by, sometimes by hometowns, you know, specific places like Eastern El Salvador, you know, is overrepresented in Washington, D.C., for example, right? People from San Salvador are overrepresented in Los Angeles. I'm not sure about the breakdown here. Maybe you want to just chime in, you know? That's, that's part of the recovery in the oral histories that I have to do and that I am doing, um, you know, because um, no one has written about Houston. <laughs> so yeah. Houston is, is through Allison's work and, and the community itself Absolutely. is coming onto the map. It's coming into itself. That's my sense mm -hmm. from out, looking from outside in once again. But yeah. it seems to be at an exciting moment for Houston Central American community. Yeah. And it's, mm -hmm. I think it's, it feels great to us to be here and yeah. the, the community members we're, we're, we're collaborating with. Well, we're working, uh, we're collaborating with the Central American Collective. Maria Vilma Duran is here tonight and um, which has, it's, you know, she's the local producer of the show. So I feel like in a way we are, um, well, we're getting better at <laughs> at being able to include the community, which is really what mm -hmm. uh, we were looking forward to. So right now we have probably like, uh, you know, the, which, which is usually the way um, that I've worked with in when, you know, with other, in other performances, working with a specific community. In, in this, this one is very dear to me, obviously. Um, being from Central America, so Crescent now we have about maybe six people from Central America who are uh, being part of the performance. So they're going to be performing with us. And, uh, and then, you know, Maria Vilma is the local producer, and now Allison has been working with us, so, and we're going to be honoring, you know, six different uh, activists um, that have been working with the Central American community in Houston. So I feel that the Houston show is a Houston show. <laughs> and the, I mean, the LA show was an LA show. So that's, that's really the, the objective, to be able to, to, in each city that we go, that the, sh that the performance is a performance that the community can feel it's our performance, mm -hmm. and that there will be, you know, things that will happen afterwards because because of it. So, so um, really I've made a lot of assumptions that there are people that there like there might actually be people in this audience who actually was part of First UU during the Sanctuary Movement who might actually have a, a, other direct first-person experiences that we could continue to add into, into this conversation. And, um, but I think that it isn't now, I think, an important transition point to, as we talk about community and we talk about Houston, to actually bring you all like, in, and open up to conversations for questions and answers. Mm -hmm. Again, thinking about, like, you know, just again, going back to sanctuary space as to, it was a, it was sacred spaces and spiritual spaces that made conscious political efforts in order to make these statements. What does that mean now? Who are, who are making those statements and who, who are the places that can actually provide and, and activate those, those ideas of sanctuary, not just for, uh, not just physical sanctuary, but spaces for, to 
for hope to flourish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So questions, responses. For hope to flourish, that's a really good way to put it. Yes. There's a microphone, just hold on one second. Thank you. Hi, I'm Chugo Akajobi. I'm the newest digital content consultant with the Houston Coalition Against Hate. And thank Mm -hmm. you so much for coming. I'm literally leaning in because I'm so interested in what you're saying, so thank you so much. I love what you said about hope, and maybe this isn't a comment, but more like a probing question. Um, So I'm a Nigerian person. I've immigrated here because, you know, Nigerian economy is not that great because of British colonialism and things like that. And I'm a queer person in the U.S. who went to an elite university and things like that and has a mentor who's a VP of a tech company in SF and we recently had a conversation because he feels like he's a very impatient person and he wants things to happen quicker and I was just thinking to myself the fact that we're commingling, the fact that we're holding community with each other right now is a huge step, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't, I definitely don't want to devalue the immense pain that you've had to experience as someone who had to see these atrocities. Um, And I, but I do want to ask the question of, and I said this to him, under capitalism, we feel that things have to be fast, efficient, everything going all at once, results immediately. And I've been living my life through this phrase or this quote, in order to get somewhere quicker, you have to go slower. Mm -hmm. And so I have that question for you is, in the concept of hope, because I feel so hopeful about the world, even though Mm -hmm. it's horrible, but there's so many advancements that we've made, you know? So my question to you is, do you feel that part of your struggle with maintaining hope, a very understandable struggle, absolutely understandable. I mean, that's why it's said that hope is a discipline, right? It's something we have to continuously do. Do you feel that a part of the struggle to have hope is rooted in capitalism? That's a really good question. (laughs) Um, I don't think so. Because I will have to say, what does it mean to be better? What does it mean to be in a better position? You could say, somebody could say money, more money. Somebody could say family, be surrounded by support, uh, have more money, and I say money because, you know, let's say that's capitalism, I don't know, to buy your food, or I could say I plant the food in my backyard. So I think that 
it's all it all depends on what it means for you to be better. It's a value thing, I think. Um, I cherish peace, let's say, or I want, I like understanding, I like communication, I like uh, to feel safe, uh, to have the right to study, to be able to have the opportunity to study, to have the opportunity to have food, to have the opportunity to have uh, medical uh, uh, you know, assistance if needed. I think that those things are possible for all human beings if we were to not be uh, if, if it was distributed, if it was distributed correctly, it, it would be possible. I do believe that. So, no, I don't think that it's based on capitalism. Um, I, I guess I just also wanna just, I think part of what we've also been talking about is the um, significance of individual stories and also the relationships that are continue to build. And I think part of the thing for me is, um, the one thing that continues to give me hope in this aspect are the relationships that we're continuing to build and the interconnectedness that we have or that we're trying to build across communities, across organizations, and, 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 and actually base it in a space of, um, of understanding and humanity and, and really recognizing that it's not, about, it's not about these ideals, but really in what ways can we actually get down to being people who are all working together in this. And, and I guess part of the work that I've been doing with the BIPOC Arts Network and Fund has been based on this idea that it has to be about, the money is great, but it is going to be the relationships that are gonna last longer than the money. And that, uh, and as we've seen, it's gonna be the, the relationships and, and the people and the community can actually create the resources or find the resources to actually help support each other that they don't necessarily have to be about an external kind of like and in what ways are we enabling something that it's not about an external um, organization that needs to to give or to get and so how are we switching from a anyway I'm gonna stop because that's going <laughs> so far out of the place so but I, I guess I guess going back again like you know thinking about the relationships and thinking about how are, like again you said like how are we actually thinking about uh, our communities and and the conversations that are based in in actions and the based in, in in trust that are actually going across communities question I have thought about um, the con the con concept of capitalism how it works here in this country and at the beginning you talked about the art social justice and spirituality or humanity if you know however you want to understand that is that interaction of all people and i think the big flaw in capitalism as it exists now and i i don't have depth of knowledge of, is that it it simply lacks that dimension of of spirituality or humanity because ah i'm brilliant i got an idea this is what i can do isn't that great I made a lot of money. All those people can't buy a house now because of me. 
and there is no connection. Well, that's the American way, that's business, that's the way it goes. To me, it should not be that way. Somehow we have to get in this awareness, and it has to come from the individual or how we are educated, that we also have some responsibility. How can you take this great idea without, you know, preventing people from ever having enough money to buy their first house because you've already snapped up all these properties with a clever deal or whatever the situation is. So that link again between the caring for other human beings and your, shall we say, entitlement to make money here in this country, we don't seem to have it. We have people in positions that have more money than anybody needs and people who can't afford to take a day off for a sick child. And it's not because capitalism of itself is evil. It just needs some serious tuning up. Thank you. Um, I, I guess to me, just I'm also hearing, is, is the church or spiritual space actually a place in order to hold a, com a community accountable to, to actually, um, to that, to that idea of not just the individual, but actually a community. And is, is, that, uh, is that one of the roles of, of, of a church or of a spiritual space? Or is it uh, like in what ways can community actually put, and, and organizations actually hold each other accountable into that space? We had a question. Yeah, thank, thank you. I, I wanted to get back to the timeline, uh, if we could, for a moment. And, and add, I guess this is a question for Addison. And Addison, I don't mean to put you on the spot. Uh, but I'm wondering if you can, if you can tell us, uh, you know, sort of when the church stopped doing the work of, you know, sort of acting as a space for yeah. these displaced persons, or, or mm -hmm. you know, how, when did that happen, and how was it that that happened? Um, yeah, great question. Um, mm -hmm. I believe, from what I'm recalling. Um, they do the programs in the summer of 85 and 86, um, and then it does begin to dwindle. Um, but I think First Unitarian Universalist Church in general was, is, continues um, to be a very active and solidarity church, but, in, but the Community Involvement Committee did start focusing its efforts in other um, arenas, like it had in the 70s, you know, um, and in the 80s, it just, it depended, right? Um, the specifics of it, though, in particular, it, it just, um, from what I can tell right now in the archives, it was just the, the necessity, I think. Um, in that particular moment, I think the 84, 85, 86 is like the peak moment, right, in terms of sanctuary across the United States. Um, and I, I don't know, a question that I guess I'm wrestling with just um, with all of this is, yes, what First Unitarian Universalist is doing, but also like simultaneously the community that is being built in Houston, right? As you were saying, like the, in Gulfton, um, I don't, now I'm rambling, but um, there's, from what I can tell right now, it's, it's just a, a natural dwindling of um, energies being placed elsewhere in other efforts. And, and just to add briefly to that, there, there was a new sanctuary movement in the 2000s, mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. uh, during uh, the, the, the waning Bush, uh, younger mm -hmm. Bush mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. um, that wasn't as big, but uh, it did, uh, there, uh, I'm trying to remember the, the woman's name in Chicago, who lived in the church basement for like a mm -hmm. year, right? Mm -hmm. There was quite a bit of yeah. media focus on that. So there was that. 
And um, uh, I wanted to go back to the broader question of the comment, uh, the second comment about capitalism and the soul soullessness of capitalism, <laughs> as you were describing it. Um, liberal and progressive and radical politics in the 60s during the civil, the civil rights movement was totally infused with spirituality. Uh, you know, SCLC, I mean, mm -hmm. right? Um, uh, was definitely part of, of the left. And, uh, and that waned after the 60s. And it, it doesn't seem like there's been kind of like that spiritual, same spiritual authority, same level of spiritual authority among the left since the original civil rights movement. <laughs> but then Raphael Warnock just won last night, you know, and he was just at the pulpit where Martin Luther King was on Sunday. So um, maybe that's a sign of something, you know, a sign of something that's been missing. Um, and uh, I, I'm Catholic. I teach at a Catholic a Jesuit university, and I, we struggle with these issues about, you know, the, the marriage of spirituality to uh, mm. this world, contemplatives in action, those kinds of, of um, issues. So, yeah. My question was related, and I was thinking about contemplation in action, uh, Ruben and Nalia. I, I can't help but think that the, the landscape is so different from 1984, and in part it has to do with the degree to which progressives are now skeptical, if not cynical, about faith-based mm options, but perhaps also because, uh, especially the ways in which the Christian um, conservative movement in the country has co-opted and has gained great power, uh, political power. So there's a kind of distrust from both faith-based and political movements in which a kind of spirituality or the preferential yeah. option of the poor could actually be the, um, the guiding principle. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think you were thinking of Tania Bruguera, the artist who, huh? was, the, who was living with the, the asylum seekers in, in New York That's in the right. basement. Yeah. That's right, yes. Thank you, Roberto. Yeah, who owns God? Yeah. Right? <laughs> I have a question about the sanctuary movement and sort of... Um, Sometimes definitions help us, right? Like limiting definitions can help. So, so with that in mind, uh, sometimes they don't help us. So feel free to say I don't think that's helped. But how is it? How is it different than say churches putting up refugees now in apartments, providing clothing, housing, finding pro bono lawyers? I feel like there are pieces of this movement that exist, particularly in churches, but also in all kinds of other community groups now too. Um, do you find that to be different, related? Some of this also talks about how we define refugee. That's a whole, lots of problems and limiting definitions here, but yes. You were alluding to this, no? I mean, um, yeah, the, the way that the community itself has taken up the task. For really. sure. Yeah, and I mean, I, correct me if I am wrong in terms of understanding your question of what's sanctuary maybe meant in 84 um, versus now, but I think the scale, right, in 84, it was a transnational movement. You know, we're talking about Mexico, the United States, and, um, and Canada, right? Mm -hmm. And 
Houston actually has been written a lot about as a funnel city to, um, for migrants who ended up in Canada, like those who ended up staying at First UU. Um, but the scale of it, like there was, there was even a trial here in Houston that happened, you know, the, the Merck, um, uh, Stacy Merck and John, John Elder, right? Um, they um, were arrested and instead of being trialed, um, in the RGV area, the, the trial was here in Houston, right? And so like the extent, and they served prison time and she was pregnant, you know, like at one point it was, but the magnitude, right? And I think the, the media portion of it was um, very transnational and even connected. They would refer to this journey, right, uh, to Canada as the overground railroad. Um, so, which is very different, I think, than what we hear of like these disconnected pieces um, in maybe churches or nonprofits today. I mean, there's a hopeful register in this because, okay, we don't, a movement began then and it's suffused mm -hmm. all kinds of structures today, including municipalities that declare themselves sanctuary. I know that that issue is kind of complicated here with what happened, you know, with what's his name? Um, uh -huh. the, uh, was he sheriff? He kind oh, of declared yes. sanctuary but didn't? Yes. yes. <laughs> so, but anyway, but... Mm -hmm. I would, I would say, I would go so far as to say is that the sanctuary movement is, is alive and well. Mm. It's just, that was the origin point. Mm. Now the wave has spread out and the ethos is in all kinds of spaces today. Um, so we are at a point where we need to uh, wrap up, but actually I'd like to just hear from any of our panelists as to um, is there any closing thought or any question that you would like to actually offer to the audience um, to continue to ponder? I guess it would be the same question that I ask myself, which is, what am I doing? You know, like in my own little place, like, what am I doing about this? I just and, and just really like say, okay, here, I can commit to this and just do it. Whatever it is, but knowing, con you know, making the decision. Ruben? Uh, I, I would just like to know how many Central Americans are here tonight? Central Americans in the house. Represent. <laughs> okay, so there's only a couple of you. Three. But, and, 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 I'm, and I'm glad that those of you who are here. But I'm very glad that everybody else is here too because this, you know, the allies, there wouldn't have been a movement without the allies. And I'm assuming many of you are allies, right? And we need the allies always in every, at every step of the way. These communities, you know, we don't need to be saved, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. But we need collaboration, yeah. we need resources, we need, uh, and we need to just be in dialogue, no? Absolutely. Um, one thought that comes to mind uh, for me that I mari marinate quite often, and it's, um, I heard this quote once, and it's, if, if the present had a therapist, it'd be history. And I think history has a lot to teach us, um, but, you know, it, it, and it can be very cathartic if we actually engage and, and let it stir something within us. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I think I leave you with that quote. Um, thank you, thank you all for your performance. Yeah. Thank you for your words. Thank you all for your generosity in order to uh, let me and meander through all of these ideas. But um, I, I am grateful for the 
the performance that you offered for us, the ideas, and the questions that we continue to sit with. So, David. I'm going to do something dangerous. In the spirit of art, improvising is great, you know. And where you start is where I want to kind of end our evening, which is about memory. And as you were talking, it's so funny, I start writing down people that have been very important to the life of the chapel, maybe to people here, people in my own personal life. But I want a little exercise here to finish. But I just want to read a few of these, some you brought up. Sister Diane Deanna Ortiz, who, you know, who just passed away. Uh, John Fife, Reverend John Fife. Organizations like No More Deaths in the, in the Desert. Uh, Joe Eldridge, Reverend Joe Eldridge, who was on the chapel board, who was Office of uh, Latin America in Washington, D.C. Stacy Merck, I had written that, I wrote her name down, I had a chance to meet her a long time ago. Proyecto Libertad, that was down in the valley doing justice work, Barca. All these different places then, but thinking now, the new sanctuary movement. I was in Oregon, August Day in a Lutheran church that held uh, place and space for a Salvadoran uh, person who was picked up in a raid. Le I mean, recently, this is not, this is today, right? Mm -hmm. So as we leave, before we leave, just a moment of silence, but it could be infused with your voice about the people, the organizations that you would lift up. Because it comes back to that question of hope. For me, that's where I find hope. It's being with people who um, courage transcends anything I could imagine. It's existential, right? Mm -hmm. That ability, I loved your piece, where there is a, your heart is pulled, but you laugh a little too, right? There's, there's both and. Mm -hmm. uh, so just for a moment, and we can almost imagine an altar right here that we build. You can call it in your heart, or you can call it through your voice, people, organizations, particularly in this context of what tonight is, that you would name, you would like to name tonight. Crecen. <ríe> que viva. Vilma Martínez Angulo, my mother. Maria Suarez. Luis and Mark Zwick, Casa Juan Diego.
So for all we named and named on our hearts, but not on our tongues, we give thanks. We give thanks. Elia, Ruben, Allison, Sixto, thank you so much for being here. Could we give them a big shout out? And remember, this is a prelude, right? Well, there's, some, there's some name for it, a prelude, a prequel or whatever for the productions at First Unitarian Universalist on December 17th and December 18th. Uh, evening and a matinee afternoon performance. As you exit back on, there's a, a little stand. We've got cards and things and the website. I think it's on Diverse Works. It's on our website here at the chapel. I, too, want to give a, a real shout-out to our staff and volunteers at the chapel. Uh, some of you all don't know, this is the beginning of the first full season back in person since COVID. Uh, so this is great to be back together again. And this is really special tonight. This is the last program of the calendar here. So there's a little bit of like, ah, we can breathe a little bit. So for that, um, and we're just so grateful for your presence tonight. So. Uh, Have a great evening. Travel safe and go in peace. Thank you.